Well, good morning, everyone. I want to go ahead and introduce you to the, the second sermon in our series entitled, When You Come Together. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 today. If you have your Bibles, you can open to that passage. Last week, when we introduced this series, I, I said something that should be a truth that we all acknowledge, that we are prone to wander, that we have a likelihood of drifting away from what God has for us. It happens to us all the time in our life. And because this happens in the life of an individual person, how much more should we expect that that would happen when we gather in groups together, namely gathered as the local church? This is why we're covering 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14, a handful of times here, more than anywhere else in the New Testament, the phrase, when you come together, is used. There were a handful of issues in the Corinthian church that the Apostle Paul was seeking to correct throughout this letter. But in these chapters, 11 through 14, he zeroes in on those issues pertaining most specifically to the local church as a group of people gathered together. In other words, these issues deal most specifically with how members of a church should relate to one another. Now, last week, in the text we walked through, Paul covered the Lord's Supper. And this week's text, Paul deals with spiritual gifts. So today will be a bit of an intro to the whole concept of spiritual gifts. And I call it an intro for a reason. Because I am sure today that I will not be answering every question that you will have about spiritual gifts. And to be quite honest with you, I still have many questions myself. But we will be introducing spiritual gifts today and then covering it, Lord willing, for the next few weeks that we're here because the text will unpack more and more how we should exercise these things. So this will not be an exhaustive introduction by any stretch. But there are some things that the Apostle Paul makes clear. Corrections to thinking. Information he wants to make sure that we've internalized regarding members of a body exercising spiritual gifts for the common good. So again, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I will read through the first 11 verses, pray, and then we'll go back through a verse or two at a time. Let's do that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. Let's pray. Father, this morning, 
I pray that our time in this passage would be helpful not only for data collection, that this would not merely be informative for us, that we would understand a doctrine better, but that we would exercise our spiritual gifts in a way that honor you, that we would practice service to our church in the way that you have commanded. So Lord, please instruct us, correct us, teach us, admonish us with your word, if that's what we need this morning. But encourage us, Father, and help for all these things to produce a greater love for you and for our fellow saints. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back to the beginning of this chapter, Paul is getting ready to introduce yet another issue that the Corinthian church is facing. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now it should be noted that right out of the gate here, the word gifts is not in the Greek here. It's implied by what's going to come next, because it will show up over the course of the rest of this chapter. But it actually says things pertaining to the Spirit. That's the meaning of the language here. He will then go on to describe spiritual qualities or characteristics that are granted to believers from God for the good of the church. That's what he has in mind, these spiritual things. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed, right out of of the beginning. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. He's concerned that there are some things that the Corinthians don't quite understand regarding spiritual gifts. And so he's going to correct their abuses here as he clears this up. The further we get into this letter, the more it's going to be clear that the Corinthians were improperly utilizing their gifts. This is actually quite important to see. And as we continue into a greater uh, unpacking of what these things are and how they're to be exercised, it's pretty clear the Corinthians weren't thinking rightly about them and even exercising them in a way that was not appropriate in the church. And so Paul is correcting something wrong. You and I need to consider that. It is possible for us to try, desire even, to exercise spiritual gifts and to do so in a way that is actually not honoring to the Lord at all. If you were with us last week, you might remember that the way that the Corinthian church was uh, distributing and experiencing, partaking in communion was so corrupted, so wrong, that Paul even said, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. You're not actually having the Lord's Supper. Whatever that thing you're doing is, it's not the Lord's Supper. And while the language is not quite as strong here, to be sure, The fact that he wants to inform them, because he's concerned of their misinformation, that they are uninformed on something, is a helpful reminder to us. And this should be principally a helpful point. You and I need to think rightly about these things in order to practice them in a way that honors God. We should be thoughtful about how God has equipped us in the church to serve one another, particularly regarding spiritual gifts, so that we will display those things in a way that pleases and honors him, that builds up the church, and is not corrupted as it seems it was for the Corinthians. Paul here spends some time clearing things up. In verses 2 and 3, he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. 
Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. So what's, what's Paul doing here? Why, why is he saying this now? Well, we can know that these Corinthians were not just the Jews who worshiped the one true God and are now learning that that one true God sent his only son for salvation. No, they came from a pagan, Gentile, non-Jewish background. Almost certainly, they were coming from the body of people who worshiped the Greek and Roman pantheon, those gods that were worshiped and lifted up by the people there. That's the religion they came out of. And those Corinthians, now they're believers, but back then, back when they were pagans, they had been spiritually deceived. They'd been spiritually deceived in these past practices. They had been spiritually credulous, gullible. They believed things that were untrue about spiritual realities. And in that deception, these untrue things touched them at a spiritual, deep level. So Paul starts by getting two things out of the way. First, I want you to understand no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. How might this apply to the Corinthian? Well, imagine a pagan neighbor were to tell one of them, Jesus is accursed. He's not real. God killed him because he hates him. If somebody were to make a statement like that, which if you recall, that's what the Jews said about Jesus on the cross. Ah, if you were the son of God, would he not take you off the cross? This is proof God's against you. If a person were to make that claim to these Corinthians, even if that person were a high priest or priestess in their false religion, no one saying Jesus is accursed is speaking on behalf of the true spirit of God. That is a false line. Do not believe it. Additionally, the only way that a person can genuinely claim that Jesus, that one that some might call the curse, he's Lord He's master. He is king of kings. The only way that someone can say that and genuinely mean it is by the Holy Spirit. This sounds similar to what John, the apostle, says later in his first letter. He writes this in 1 John 4, 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I want you to pause with me and just imagine what's being corrected here, what's being warned against. First, what you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. Most important thing about you. This is why we call ourselves Christians, little Christs. Christ is at the absolute center of our faith. It's not about a list of rules and works. It's not about a list of data points that we might collect, beliefs that we say that we hold to. It's about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, what you preach about him, say about him, is absolutely and eternally critical. If you're not a believer today, you need to know that. You need to know that we are crazy about Jesus. That there are a variety of places, doctrinal categories that we might have a, a few distinctions on and the way we approach things. I'm confident that as I preach through 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, there will be several places where some might go, oh, I'm not fully there with you. Jesus ain't one of those areas. Belief in Jesus Christ is a totally different category altogether. A person speaking in the spirit of God 
genuinely can say, Jesus is Lord. You need to know this. He is our only way to forgiveness of sins and peace with God. There are true spiritual experiences and there are false spiritual experiences. True spiritual experiences and false ones. And we need to know how to figure out which is which. And we ought not fall into the ditch on either side of the road. We ought not believe all spiritual experiences. Neither should we reject all spiritual experiences. You and I come from different backgrounds. Some of you might come out of a Mormon faith. Some of you might come out of an atheistic background. You never really thought much about God or believed in him at all. Maybe New Age spiritualism. Maybe you grew up in some kind of church that called itself Christian, but it just wasn't really real for you. It was just kind of rote religion. Each of these has a very corrupted view of spiritual things. Just like these former pagans. You used to think very wrongly about spiritual things. You ought not import that wrong thinking into your new faith in Christ. The indwelling and the empowering of believers by the Holy Spirit, those are real experiences. And we should expect to see and to feel those. John 14, 16 through 7, Jesus says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now this will go on, that's, that statement in John 14 will go on to be fully realized in the hearts and lives of believers after Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers. If you're a believer today, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That is a supernatural reality. That is a spiritually experienced reality. You and I live in an area that's surrounded by uh, people who put a high weight on experience. Mormon religion is very experiential. In fact, I've known many people who said that I, they're confirmed in their belief in the Mormon church because one day on the way to some church function, they prayed that all the lights would turn green. They turned green. Therefore, spiritual experience confirms that church is true. Brothers and sisters, just because we experience something does not make it spiritual. An atheist can have the same experience. That's what we would call circumstantial. You and I need to know how to judge rightly between these experiences. And while Paul doesn't unpack that idea fully here, he at least begins by saying, the way you approach these things as pagans is different than the way you must approach them now as believers. And now he explains how true spiritual realities are designed to work in the church. Moving on to verses 4 through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So first, there are varieties of gifts. It's not just one. It's not just because you have the Spirit of God, you experience all the same things exactly the way your fellow brothers and sisters will. No, there are varieties of gifts that the Holy Spirit may give. Now, over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to spend much more time in unpacking a lot of those spiritual gifts. Because we're going to see multiple lists come out, two in chapter 12 alone. A couple of them are even more specifically unpacked in chapters 13 and 14. 
We will get to some of that. But right out of the gate, there are varieties of these. Expect that. Varieties of gifts, varieties of service, varieties of activities or effects. But all of our gifts have the same source. This is yet another difference between the God of the Bible and the gods of pagan religions. So again, he's helping correct them. Listen, the way you thought about this stuff as a pagan might be very, very different than the way you should think about them now. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. It's all unified. Uh, My older kids right now in our kind of homeschool plan are learning about the Roman and Greek pantheons. They're learning about those false gods of that era. It's actually helping them consider a lot of the passages of the Bible and the corrections given here. And one of the things that we've been learning together is that differing gods, according to the Greek and Roman traditions, not only were given different charges over portions of the world, over the sea or the stars or the sun or farming or war, but they also had different characteristics, personalities that distinguished themselves from the other gods. And so if a person were particularly attuned to one of those false gods, they were to experience things in the same order as that God might have. So so the God of the sea, like Poseidon, might give power of water to those in his charge. Ares, the, the false God of war, would be the one who would equip the general to win the war. That's the way that it worked. And you'd see differing gifts coming from differing gods. That is not the way it works with us. All of our gifts have the same source, the same spirit. And did, you, did you notice the Trinity is the source? The triune God of the Bible is the source. There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit, a variety of service, but the same Lord, the Son, Jesus Christ. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God, the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. This is kind of the way we see the Trinity all throughout the Bible. So you could rightly ask the question and answer it this way. Who equips us, gives us, empowers us with spiritual gifts? The Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Yes. It's one of those, isn't it? Yep. God, Father, Son, and Spirit equip us. It's not that the the Father gives us this one kind of gift, and once we get in touch with the Son, He'll give us a a different kind of gift, and sometimes the Spirit gets a little rebellious and a little once again. No, 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 no. Unified in purpose in all things, the triune God of the Bible empowers them all in everyone. He is the source of every good thing. That's what it says in James 1.17. That came to mind when I was writing that out. That he is the source of all good. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing, to include the spiritual gifts granted to believers, come from our Father in heaven. You may even notice that the way the Trinity is spoken there will correct us from wrong thinking and where we receive these things. And because of that, all these gifts work together in accordance with one another. They're not in opposition. It's not like the Marvel Universe where, where one by one God is, is equipped with uh, the, uh, fire power and the other one with ice power and they battle. No, no, no. Th- this should be seen in operation as working together with a shared purpose. And what's that shared purpose? As it says in the next verse, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? 
for the common good. That's why it's given to us. We have been equipped, empowered, gifted spiritually in such a way that we will not just be privately served, but that we would employ those gifts for the benefit of our church, for the other believers in our lives. This is awesome to consider. Critical even. God is a provider. All provision flows from God, not to him. whole Bible tells us this. It's not that God needs something that we provide for him. He doesn't have this unless we provide it for him. Paul says that in Acts chapter 17. Makes it very clear. Hey, our God does not live in temples made by man, human hands. In fact, we can't even provide him with it. He is, he is the source of all life in everything. He's the one who gives to us, not the other way around. And oftentimes, the way that God provides for his church is through his church. The way that God provides for his church is through his church. Oftentimes, when you and I pray for a very specific need, it is the church that God sends as the one who will bring that provision. It is the church that comes around one another. This means that when you execute on the need that another one has, it is highly likely, if not certain, that that has worked as an answer to prayer that the Lord has sent you in some way in order to fulfill that need. We are doing exactly what God designed for us to do when we meet needs for one another. And it says this in many other passages in the New Testament. It even says this about leaders in the church, office holders, where it seems like that's the, that's the, the, the context of Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Even the office holders in the church, why, do they, why are they to exercise their gifts? Why did God give those gifts, those skills? Why did he do that for them? That they would build up the body of Christ. Romans 12, 4 through 6 is a bit of a, parallel passage about uh, these, uh, these giftings that are uniquely given to people. We'll be covering that again in upcoming weeks, but listen to what it says in verses 4 through 6 of Romans 12. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then it says, let us use them. You've been given these gifts. For what? For use, not to atrophy. Oh, it's just nice that I have that skill. No, no, no. This is to be employed. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. God's given us our gifts for a reason. Remember the parable of the talents that Jesus told? That the master apportions out his talents to his servants in different measure, and each are supposed to employ those talents. And that, that word talent means money, uh, financial, um, monetary value there. The idea is that whatever the blessing is that's been given to us, we are to multiply it. We are to put it to work for the good of the church. Now Paul's going to turn his direction to a sample list of these spiritual gifts. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. 
to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Each one of us has been given spiritual gifts, and these gifts differ from one another. We're equipped distinctly. And for a reason, God has done that. God has done that in such a way that the body needs one another. We are to unite in the service, in the expression of these gifts. Now, I have to say, I don't think that there's a magic number, a very specific identified number in the Bible of spiritual gifts. Doesn't sound like that to me. And the reason I think that is because there's multiple of these kinds of lists in the New Testament. One of them is right here, and there are nine gifts listed. There's another list given at the end of chapter 12, which we'll hopefully get to next week. And that's a different list and a different number. Ephesians chapter 4, which I just read, had yet a different number of giftings, offices that were listed there. And even in Romans chapter 12, there's seven listed there as opposed to the nine here. So it doesn't sound to me like Paul means to exhaust every possible way that God has supernaturally, spiritually gifted members of his church. I think that that's the case. But did you notice here that this list includes those that are most evidently supernatural? I think that's why he chose this grouping here. Because of the kinds of gifts that are talked about in other places, this is the one that almost all of them we go, oh, that's miraculous. Like some, some, my atheist neighbor couldn't do what's on this list. Why? Well, I think because Paul is making the point here that these are supernatural. They're divinely inspired. That was the point made right before this paragraph and the point made at the end of it. All of these come from the Spirit. They come from the Spirit. They are not to be confused with natural skills and abilities. These are different than that. These are supernaturally given. I've heard it said before that perhaps Samson, the strongest man in the Bible, looked like a little wimpy kind of 90-pound kind of dude, didn't look so giant. Well, and, and the reasoning people sometimes give is because the idea is that it's supernatural. It's not that you look at him like, whoa, this giant, massive man. Of course he's stronger than everybody it was, not, it was imperceptible. I, I don't know what he looked like. No matter how big you are, you've got to be a whole new supernatural level to move gates of cities. But the idea is the Spirit empowers each one here individually as he wills. And when the Spirit gives a gift, you better know he didn't mess it up. He wasn't confused. Well, I, I just figured that we needed to get him out, so... Everyone draws straws. No, this is, this is for a concerted reason. God has gifted you in such a way that you are designed to employ those gifts for the service of the church, for the common good. And he gets to choose what he's gifted you with. You don't get to choose. It's awesome the way that that works out. It is not by consensus. It's not by what can be just observed by others merely. But it is something supernatural, divinely inspired. As I said already, in later weeks, we will unpack these. I don't think that in this paragraph, it was Paul's intention to talk about the details of these gifts. He'll get to some of those details uh, forthcoming. So if you're thinking after we wrap up here today, like, ah, oh, 
He talked about tongues, and that's all he said. We're going to get to some of those details in upcoming weeks. But here, the Spirit is the one who gives these things. They are empowered by one and the same. In my experience uh, in Christian church, there's a lot of confusion regarding what spiritual gifts are, how we're to identify them, how we're to exercise or practice those things. And so I want to spend the next few minutes here as we kind of wrap up our time together today, trying to dissipate at least the starting point of some of the confusion using this portion. In upcoming weeks, I hope to do that even more. But this is super important because I've known many believers who've had a great deal of consternation over wondering what their spiritual gift is. I can't, I can't figure it out. I, I, I don't know what it is. I read these lists. None of them sound like me. If that's you, I hope to try to be a good servant to you in this. I've known churches and gatherings of believers to do spiritual gifts assessments. Have you ever been a part of one of these? Done these before where you write down the things, I, I, I enjoy this. I think this is a skill that I have. This is the way that I respond to these circumstances. And, and I'm not making fun of those. I think Christians have tried to help other believers identify what might the Lord have built you to do. But sometimes those have confused more than help people in trying to figure it out. I know some people who struggle with a lack of satisfaction in the service they give to the church. They struggle in their heart. Man, I, I feel like I'm so designed to do this. I'm just doing this thing, but I, I just, I'm not sure that that's all the Lord wants from me. I just, I don't feel satisfied by that. I'm trying to be, Lord. Do I just need to get my heart right and just be grateful? Or do you want me to do something different or more other than what I'm doing? Others I know struggle with a lack of spiritual growth and maturity, and they wonder if it's, I'm, just, I'm not, I'm not importing any of the good that God's given me into the church. I'm not serving others. Well, I, don't, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or how to do it. And so I feel like it's an obstacle in my Christian growth that I haven't figured out how to serve well. And still others on the other side, those who are, are needing, uh, think, needing service from others, needs not getting met because the body has not quite figured out how to operate together. Now again, the way we started this whole sermon series was me expressing that we have to constantly be guarded against the water flowing into our tanks that the bilge pump needs to push out, worldliness, the, 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 the slow drift towards fleshly things. We need to do this, and we need to mature as a church. To put it quite simply, I hope that the worship at our church, even just a Sunday gathering, matures over time. Don't you think that about yourself? Lord, I hope that my prayers when I'm 75, 80 are better than they are right now. Not because my prayers right now are ineffective or the Lord doesn't want them. Or I, I want to grow in the way that I pray and the way that I sing and the way that I worship and the way that I read and study, and, right? Well, perhaps as a body, there are seasons of time where we're kind of like that, that gangly uh, prepubescent teenager figuring out how to do life and as a church, it's good for us to just go, let's, let's mature through this. Let's learn how our parts are supposed to work together. So I want to propose to you today three categories of ways that we can and should serve our church. And as we go, I hope to explain why it's so important to parse out the differences in these categories. Because if we conflate them, I think we're going to miss something big. Three categories of ways that we can and should serve our church. The first category is exercising our spiritual gifts. That's what's being talked about in this passage. That's the correction being given here that will continue 
for the next couple of chapters. Spiritual gifts, as we've been hearing, are not naturally acquired talents, skills, abilities, aptitudes. That's not what they are. They are supernaturally provided by God after a person becomes a believer. Peter did not need to practice healing people. God gave him the ability supernaturally to heal. Gold and silver I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. Boom. I don't think the night before he was practicing, okay, right hand, grab him, make sure you say. I don't, it wasn't a natural thing. It was entirely supernatural. So that when people said, Peter, how do you have this power? It's not me. It's in the name of Jesus Christ whom you killed that this can happen. Those giftings are supernatural. God gets to choose them. We don't. And they are given to us after we become a believer. After then. That's actually quite important when you're trying to distinguish between a natural gifting and a spiritual gift. My goodness, that person's such an amazing public speaker. If only he became a Christian. Pray for that person. Bam, becomes a a Christian. Man, he must be spiritually gifted to be a preacher. Maybe or maybe not. I don't know. Could just be a natural skill. That should also be leveraged, but that might not be spiritual. It's been amazing to me when I've done street evangelism and run into somebody who doesn't strike you as the best communicator. Doesn't strike you as the most intellectual person to solve all the problems, give all the right answers, knows exactly the verse and the placement. And sometimes God uses that person in a profound way, and you're just like, oh man, the Lord did something. I've been with people before and experienced and watched that go down. I've been really humbled by that. Man, the Lord is so good to provide for the church in such a way, and He does this through supernaturally given spiritual gifts. Now, one of the things that makes it even more difficult to figure this out sometimes is it seems, according to the New Testament, that a believer may possess more than one spiritual gift at any given time. In fact, Paul, later in this section in 1 Corinthians, will say, for those of you who are able to speak in tongues, pray that you may also interpret. Those are two separate gifts. So you have one, pray that you can do the other. Paul, we know, could prophesy, do miracles, heal. These apostles, seems like they, they could do a whole variety of things. It does seem that there is a way in which Christians could experience multiples of these gifts, which actually makes sense when you consider the variety of bodies of Christ around the world. Imagine a small church in some rural area of Mongolia, where there's only 10 believers in the town. The Lord probably is not saying you're going to have to survive without an arm and a foot. But perhaps he's providing multiple giftings through the few there that they may serve one another without lacking anything. Just as perhaps in a larger church body where there are more believers present, maybe there's less need for multiple people who have a whole host and variety, but that all would be involved. We see our individual gifts more clearly. This means that you're at your church for a reason. If you're a member of a local church body, if you're a member here at the Mission Church, you're here to be a part of the body. We'll talk more later, but next week's about this. But when a person leaves a church, they leave a hole because they were designed by God to meet needs, to utilize this service for the good of that local body. So how can you identify what these are in your life? That's one of the big questions Christians always ask. Well, okay, a spiritual gift. So how do I identify that? What do I do? Might I suggest that because they are designed to be used in the service of others, you need others to help identify what those are. 
It's probably not you sitting in a room somewhere and go, that's my gift. It's probably not what it is. You probably need that confirmed by other believers in your life. I remember uh, the way that I became a pastor, got onto the track of pastoral ministry. I had been serving at a church in Illinois where I had been previous to moving out here to Utah, prior to here. And uh, I just served as a volunteer on the worship team. And when that worship pastor uh, went over to, to do overseas missions, uh, they asked me to take the responsibility of uh, music and tech director. And I loved it. I thought it was great. I, it was the first time I'd ever done any full-time ministry. It was an entirely new shift in my mind. And I began, began to think, well, Lord, wow, it seems like you've drawn me to vocational ministry. Wow, that, that's, that's really great. I sat down with our lead pastor at the church, after having been in that role for six to nine months, forget about that amount of time, and he said, Rich, we have an opening for a youth pastor. And I, I'd, like, I'd like you to consider going down the pastoral track. We'll put you through school, we'll train you that way. But I think that that might be something you should consider. But if you, if you think honestly that the Lord's made you to be a music and tech director, we'll put you in music and tech, and we'll put you through school for that, and we'll help equip you as much as we can. Because they held it. I want to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We'll, we'll do that. But I just need you to help confirm, and we'll try to help from the outside, as, as your brothers out here in Christ. You tell us what you think you're supposed to do. So I went home, prayed about it, thought a lot about it, uh, kind of inspected the details, the pros, con list, kind of. And I remember coming to church that next day, uh, sat down in front of uh, a much older brother in Christ, one of the other pastors who was old enough to be my grandfather. And I sat down, and he goes, so you talked uh, with the other pastor? Yeah. You prayed about this? Yeah. Okay, so what are you going to do? Music or pastor ministry? And I go, music. He goes, no, you're going to be a pastor. Go tell HR that's what you're doing. <laughs> and I, I, uh, uh, he goes, seriously, that's what you're supposed to do. I, I don't think so. You're wrong. <laughs> and so I did that. I look back now, and I think about that, because brothers and sisters, I, I, I do think that I've been designed by God to be a preacher and a teacher and a pastor. And that had to be affirmed by outside of ourselves. Perhaps this is how we can help see what spiritual gifts we have and are to utilize by need and by what is affirmed by others in our lives. First category then, to repeat that, first category of ways that we can and should serve our church is by exercising spiritual gifts. You need to be around other believers. Let them watch and observe you. And someone come up and go, have you, have you thought about this thing? Seems like maybe the Lord's made you for that. Second category of a way that you can and should serve believers in your life, your local church, is by leveraging natural abilities. Leveraging natural abilities. This is the one that is probably the most obvious to us. In fact, might, might I suggest that this is the one that is the most typical landing spot for believers. You kind of survey what you're good at and say, well, I'll employ that because I'm good at it. And for the record, amen, praise be to God, you should. If the Lord has equipped you in some particular way, naturally, you were born with that skill and or it was developed through ordinary means over time, put that into service for the good of God's people around you. Praise be to the Lord. But these are not the same as spiritual gifts, and that's okay. These are the kinds of skills and abilities your atheist neighbor might have, like we said. 
You can benefit the body greatly by doing this. But that does not mean that these are not owing to God. So we don't go, okay, God gives us spiritual gifts, but all the other cool cool skills, those are on me. No, no, I don't mean to say that at all. I mean that there's a supernaturally provided, extraordinary, outside the ordinary means of provision, supernatural, spiritual gift. And there's a typical ordinary means provision, which are the natural gifts. I want to show you this back in Exodus chapter 31, verses 3 through 6. There were two men specifically identified by God and gifted to be the chief craftsmen in building, the physical building and designing of the tabernacle, the predecessor of the temple of God. And this is said of Oholiab and Bezalel back in Exodus 31. And I have filled him, Bezalel, with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now pause. I suspect it is possible that's a spiritual gift. It's a very skill-based thing. It could be a spiritual gift. But listen to what it says next. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Sounds like perhaps that's two categories. This falls in line with Hebrews 13, 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. We may be gifted things, even financial things, which is probably what's mostly going on there, skills, abilities, uh, the the proximity to a need. And it is to the glory of God and the good of our church. It's pleasing sacrifice to God when we exercise those things. We are to use our natural skills for the benefit of the church also. And we don't have to conflate that with spiritual gift. You may be very good at fill in the blank. Good at finances. I do that all day long. It's my job. I, I, I crunch numbers for a living. I could help the church figure the spreadsheet out easy. You're a tradesman. I can build anything. I can fix it. I can do plumbing or electrical or whatever. You know, the church needs that. I'm happy to help out someone in our church who needs that. Oh, man, someone's basement flooded. Well, it just happens I own a business that pumps water out of basements, basements that flooded. How awesome is it when brothers and sisters in Christ leverage natural abilities for those things in service of the church? And that's why the area of confusion exists, because I think we sometimes conflate spiritual gifts and natural abilities. Those are not necessarily the same. And I admit, and this is something important to acknowledge, I don't think it's at all unusual for God to provide a spiritual gift that also aligns with a natural gift. It seems very likely. Paul was a very... uh, a brilliant man. He was able to argue and challenge. He was a good orator. He, he had been trained in big and important schools to be able to do that. And then he becomes an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those things matched up well. I think that that can definitely happen. But that same Paul, who was the perfect Jew, was sent to the Gentiles. Wait, what? Why would you send the Jew to the Gentiles? It doesn't even make sense. Peter would be better suited because he, he wasn't as good of a Jew. And yet, the Lord sometimes can align natural abilities and sometimes not for his glory. Most of the brothers and sisters in your local church have needs and you may be the most suited to serve in a particular area. I think it is good to do those assessments and go, take stock of what you can do and find ways to employ those things. Third, Category of ways that we can and should serve our church. First is spiritual gifts. Second is natural abilities. Third is by simply 
meeting needs. You can think of these perhaps as chores, stuff that just has to get done. There are still things in the church that just need to be done. It might not be in your spiritual gifting or even natural gifting, but it is a way that we serve the body of Christ. I'm, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm the, I'm the head of the household in my home. The Bible specifies that I'm to be the chief provider, protector, shepherd, pastor of my household. It says nothing about taking out the garbage, but I take out the garbage. And you know what? I don't really think it's a spiritual gift of mine. In fact, I'm not even sure it's a natural gift of mine. I almost never break down the boxes when they go in the recycling bin. Can you imagine one of your kids, if right after dinner, you ask them to clean up the dishes, and your, your kid goes, I'm sorry, Dad, that's not my spiritual gift. <laughs> oh, oh, really? It's not your spiritual gift. Well, let's talk. Simply meeting needs is an important thing. In fact, with a good attitude, doing this, is profoundly Christ-like. Think about foot washing is not a spiritual gift. And I don't think we could say that Jesus was more naturally skilled in washing feet. And yet Jesus gets down on his knees before his disciples, provides an amazing example to them in being a servant because no one else had washed their feet. Jesus will even say in Matthew 23, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Sometimes there are just needs that have to be met. And it is to the glory of God and for the good of our church, the common good when we exercise not just our spiritual gifts and our natural abilities, but fulfilling a need because it's there. Now, why is it so important to have these categories in mind? Here's why I would take time to do that as we're introducing the idea of spiritual gifts. Because I do think that oftentimes believers conflate all these categories together. And that can be a problem in several ways. In the case of the one who has identified his spiritual gift, he or she may neglect to serve the church in the other way. So imagine the pastor. I've known pastors who said, I've been given the gift of teaching or preaching exhortation, which might be very true. And so he says, so I'm not taking out the garbage. And so maybe he gets puffed up. He neglects to be a servant. He won't do those things and model the way that Jesus modeled. He's identified spiritual gift, but you're missing the other categories. Maybe there are other things that you can do also. Maybe the Lord skilled you, give you skills and abilities or just the chore that needs to be done. Oh, that's beneath me. No. That can be an error of conflating that all of these, no, I'm only supposed to do what my spiritual gift is. In the case of the one who has a very evident natural skill, he or she may not explore the ways that God has gifted them spiritually for the service of the church, not even pursue what their spiritual gift might be. So imagine the woman who has a beautiful singing voice. She serves on the worship team, but never goes on to realize the other ways that God may have designed for her to serve in the church. And so she struggles with feeling unsatisfied in her service. I've known people like this who they're really good at one particular thing, and so they always get uh, kind of asked to do X, Y, or Z. Because, well, it seems like it fits with you. You have 28 kids. You should just be the woman in charge of the nursery. Well, I'm, um, okay. And oftentimes, Christians, uh, just out of the goodness of their heart, I'll help serve there, but it's kind of draining, and there ends up being a struggle with satisfaction, and they, they wonder, is this just a sin thing because I can't be satisfied? Maybe. 
But perhaps it's because we're conflating all the categories. And, and maybe it would be good for you to hold some babies in the nursery. But also, the Lord made you for something. And he's spiritually gifted you. Not that that gift would atrophy, if, if that's possible, but that that would be employed. Similarly, in the case of the one who eagerly helps with all the chores, he or she may not utilize the other ways they've been designed by God to provide for the church. Serving your church in this way is a great benefit to you. It's such a pleasure, such a privilege to get to serve and exercise your areas of gifting and to sweat and labor and to sacrifice for and to be tired and doing service for the body. It is so awesome to experience. This is not a zero-sum game. Hear that? That's not the way it works in God's economy. Last night, I was reading through the Sermon on the Mount with my oldest three kids. I spent time with them at the end of the, going through Jesus' teaching, and I was talking to them about the treasures, uh, reading out loud Jesus' words, the, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and asking a bunch of questions back and forth. And one of the kids made the remark, oh, that's kind of like what, what Jesus said about it's better to give than to receive. It's like, yeah, think, think about that. It is better to give than to receive. You see, in the worldly economy, giving is a loss where you end up with less and someone else gets more. That's not the way it works in God's economy. We both benefit greatly because it is great, even greater to give than to receive. And so the church is trying to constantly outdo one another in showing honor. Oh, you think you can give more than me? Oh, watch. I'll serve you. I'll serve you more. What a great competition. Now, I have to tell you, I, I do think that our church does a great job at these things. I do. As I look at the things that I pray as a pastor, like, Lord, where do we need to kind of correct and where are the big errors and things like that? I, I look out, I think we're doing a really great job at this mostly. It's incredibly rare, I think, that a need is expressed in our church that's not immediately met by others with great joy. But we, we want to grow in that. We want to help more people find what their spiritual gift, uh, employ their natural gifting, uh, quickly identify the needs that are in neither of those categories. One of the ways we want to try to practically help you is as you walked in today, did you see those tables out there? Those are for walk, go, go up to one of those tables and, and let one of the people behind the tables know that I'd be willing to help out with where my natural skills abilities are, maybe where I've already identified a spiritual gift, or maybe just some chores. Maybe there are some things that I'm not even sure that I'm a friendly person, but I'll greet people. Good. Maybe that'll help you get friendlier. That'd be good, right? Just don't talk. <laughs> but no, seriously, the ways that we can serve one another, ways where we look at these categories and say, God, I want to leverage all of it. I, don't want, I, want, to, I want to serve where, where there are just needs. I want to know that the ways that I've been skilled and I've, I've, I've worked on these things, I've labored to make myself a better worker in these areas, I want to use those for the church too, to benefit believers. And Father, I, you made me to, with a supernatural gifting to go do this. I want, I want to do that as well. And what great joy would it be if we were able to participate in those together. Please stop by the lobby on the way out and, and, and check out one of those tables. But I want to close with this. You and I can only do these things and find great joy in doing them because Jesus provided the greatest example. We said before that all of this 
comes down to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what we think about him. The King of kings and the Lord of lords gets down on his knees to wash the mud and the crud off of the feet of his disciples. And he doesn't go, this is one weird moment, I'm just doing something odd. No, 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 this is the way it's supposed to be. That we would serve one another with great sacrifice and love. If our king would get down on our knees, how much more should his servants? You see, you and I are dirty, rotten, broken sinners. All of us have contributed massive sin to this global stage. He's the only one who didn't. And because of our sin, we deserve the right justice. That's judgment and wrath of God poured upon us. But by God's great grace and mercy to demonstrate his love, he sends his only son who lives a perfect life and serves even in the best possible model and example for us. And he goes to the cross in the greatest act of service that has ever been done in the history of mankind that anyone who would believe in him can have eternal life. If you've not done that today, you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. The same Jesus who gets into the, put in the tomb, he's buried three days later, raises from the dead, will ascend into heaven and seat at the right hand of the Father. The Jesus who is referred to as our helper, who sends to us the Holy Spirit, who will be our helper. God the Father is talked about in the Old Testament as our helper. Our God who loves us and serves us should be a constant reminder to us that we should be a service to others. If you're not a believer today, you need to repent of sins, turn in faith to Jesus, join a God-honoring church, and serve sacrificially for your joy and for the glory of God. This morning, we're going to take communion together. And if you're a believer, if you do believe in Jesus for salvation, you can partake. You don't need to be a member here. You need to be a member of the universal body. If you're not a Christian, let the elements pass because as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Just, just don't come up. Just go ahead and stay in your seat. No judgment on you. We look forward to the day that you would become a believer and partake of these things with us. We want you included in this meal that the Lord has offered. But if you are a Jesus follower and lover today, please take a communion. You're an unworthy, unfit soul who is worshiping a worthy and fit Savior. I'm going to go ahead and offer a prayer for communion and then ask that you come forward, grab the elements, that's the stack of cups together, take it back to your seats, and then we'll, we'll take of those elements together. Let's pray. Father, we love you. The way that you have designed your church is so opposite than the way the world shows us. Almost every single worldly organization looks like a pyramid scheme with faulty, wicked human beings at the very top, lording it over those who are under them. But Father, the one true, ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords, who is in authority over all things in heaven and on earth, shows his great love to us, not only in dying on the cross and bringing us into eternal life by faith in him, but serves, cares for, provides for our needs. Father, I pray that we'd be able to do likewise, that we would do exactly as Jesus said, that we would follow his example and that we would become great in the kingdom by being servants of one another. Lord, I pray that the way that I talked about these things today would be helpful, edifying, and challenging for our church. Father, that we would think rightly about natural skills, spiritual gifts, and even the chore tasks that we must do as a body. Lord, we love you and trust you and need your help in doing all these things. Thank you for communion 
that even brings us into the covenant is an expression of what really did that, Lord, in remembrance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.